I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Protect George Santos at all costs. I have a lot of thoughts about the January 6th committee report and especially the revelation that Melania Trump was terrified that because of the coup, Rudy Giuliani was going to see her walking around in her robe. But first, I love George Santos with every fiber of my being. American political history is filled with other congressmen, other candidates, other senators, other presidents, other pundits who have been walking time bombs for their own party. But George Santos is unique. All previous walking time bombs have eventually detonated and then dispersed. But George Santos is the Sisyphus of walking political time bombs. He blows up. He does his collateral damage to this Republican or that one. The smoke clears. And then he blows up again. He is the bomb cyclone of congenital liars. It has now become evident as newly as last night that Santos could not only become the poster boy for not just Republican dishonesty, but Republican moronic dishonesty and Republican laugh out loud stupid dishonesty. And he could not only cost Kevin McCarthy the House speakership, but he might be able to first get McCarthy a hamstrung speakership beholden to lunatics like himself. And he might then be able to get McCarthy fired later because per Politico, McCarthy's support for the speakership vote will be so razor thin that he will have to bow to the Freedom Caucus. And if Santos has to quit at some point... That support will get thinner and thinner, and the Freedom Caucus will be able to force McCarthy out the first time he does not do what they want. And remember, the Freedom Caucus does not exist to legislate, nor even to block Democratic policy. It exists only to get its members reelected by keeping their supporters in a perpetual state of paranoid, xenophobic agitation. Between them, George Santos and the Freedom Caucus can reduce the Republican House majority into purposeless, ineffective, arguing chaos. Thank you, Lord. Let me repeat my plea, Democrats. Make all the calls for Santos's resignation that your conscience or your constituency demands. But nobody, nobody is to file a motion 
to prevent him from being seated in Congress next week. Protect George Santos at all costs. I mean, think of all we know about Santos that we did not know 24 hours ago, and think what this list will look like by next week. Like, George Santos claimed to be black. July 3rd, 2020, he tweeted, MLK did not die for us to go back to segregation. As a biracial person, I stand tall against segregation of any kind. A respondent asked without rancor, how are you biracial? There are three races, black, Caucasian, Asian. Which two are you? On July 6th, Santos responded, Caucasian and black, unquote. Like, George Santos hates those who are compelled to dishonesty in public life. August 30th, 2021, he tweeted in all caps, Biden is a pathological liar. Like, George Santos is opposed to people posing as Republican candidates just to take and make money. October 9th, 2021, he tweeted, I'm tired of grifters and frauds in politics. We need to get serious if we are going to win in 2022. Like his mother's family has lived in Brazil since the late 1800s, and she was also born there, but she was also also born a white woman from Belgium who immigrated to the United States. Like... Last week, I joked George Santos, if that is your real name. Well, it turned out he claimed his mother's real name was Zabrowski, and there is evidence he used the name Zabrowski himself and fundraised it off of it. Total fabrication, apparently. Like, George Santos is opposed to corruption. March 23rd, 2022, he tweeted... Content of character is what is important and what we need to be teaching our children. Like, speaking of teaching, he didn't just lie about his college education, he lied about his high school education. His parents, quote, sent me to a good prep school, which was Horace Mann Prep in the Bronx, and in my senior year of prep school, unfortunately my parents fell on hard times, the first thing to go was the prep school. Horace Mann a rival school of my own prep school, and obviously not quite as good as my own prep school, and as meticulous and bluntly righteously venomous about anybody who claimed to go there when they did not, as all the prep schools are, Horace Mann says conclusively, George Santos never went to Horace Mann. Like, while working at Goldman Sachs, he got up on, quote, the stage at the largest private equity conference in the world, SALT, run by Anthony Scaramucci, and he berated his employer. Well, I did that. Just two problems there. Scaramucci confirms Santos never went to any SALT conference. And of course, criticizing his employer, Santos never worked for Goldman Sachs. Like, if you want to attend his, quote, swearing-in celebrations next Tuesday for $100 or $500 for VIPs, you get a round-trip bus from New York to Washington, you get a tour of the Capitol grounds courtesy Team Santos, and you get lunch. And the date of the swearing-in on the invitation is January 3rd, 2022, which is 361 days ago. And lastly, like... The Republican district attorney investigating to see what crimes, if any, Santos has actually committed has since been joined by the Queens district attorney, the New York state district attorney and the U.S. attorney in Brooklyn, who is apparently following the money. I mean, at this rate, by next week, George Santos will be under investigation by the world court at The Hague. I cannot say this too many times. Democrats, leave Georgie alone. There is only one caveat to this, and it is just as serious as I have not been to this point. It is possible the George Santos drama ends tragically, or much more likely it ends with some evidence or at least some claim that George Santos is not just a lying, manipulative, perfectly untrustworthy Republican. But there is something literally, psychologically, or emotionally wrong with him, and he will make some statement recognizing that fact or claiming it. 
For a week now, George Santos has made me think of Brian Williams. And I have told you before that I was actually at the New York Rangers hockey game in the crowd, the game during which Brian Williams self-destructed. The day he publicly took the story of a scary but not directly life-threatening experience during the invasion of Iraq, where some helicopters that had flown hours before his had been hit by fire. And over a decade, he had gradually inflated the story a little bit here and a little bit more there and a little bit even more then until the day finally arrived at this hockey game in 2015 when Brian Williams had the public address announcer tell of an Army sergeant major who aided, quote, Brian Williams and his NBC News team after their Chinook helicopter was hit and crippled by enemy fire. There was no enemy fire. There was no hit. They were in Iraq. That was the tipping point at which Iraq veterans began to complain about the lies of Brian Williams, many of whom had known many of them for many years. Williams would eventually be demoted from anchor of NBC Nightly News to part-timer at MSNBC. But as somebody who had known him 18 years by that point, it was clear to me that Brian had something psychologically wrong with him. I liked Brian. I wanted to help him. He didn't have a lot of friends at NBC. I wrote to one NBC executive who was still a friend of mine, get him drunk, take him into his office, scatter some empty liquor bottles all around, then call in the photographers from the New York Daily News and the New York Post and explain Brian's gone to rehab. You don't have to say anything else because rehab is the get-out-of-jail-free card of the 21st century. He comes back in a month, and they will throw a parade for him down Broadway. To a former boss of mine still at NBC, I sent this email. Put him on tonight, and at the start of nightly, have him say this. I'm taking a voluntary leave of absence for fill-in-the-blank days, and during that time, the entirety of my salary will be donated to any military charity you can think of, because while I did not intend to exaggerate my experience in Iraq, being hit by small arms fire is bad enough, being behind the helicopter that got hit with an RPG is worse... Nevertheless, I did exaggerate it. And a newsman cannot make a mistake like that without consequences. Thank you for your forbearance. Now for the rest of tonight's newscast, here is any other NBC employee's name here. I added this postscript. It was true in 2015 for Brian Williams, and it is true today for almost anybody in this situation. Do this, and he could still swerve out of this. It may seem far-fetched that a congressman-elect who has lied about everything except for the fact that his name is George could also still swerve out of this. But he could. There is a faint warning bell in the story of the George Santos of 1954. He was Republican Representative Douglas Stringfellow of Utah, war hero. As the Washington Post noted, Stringfellow rocketed from local disc jockey to up-and-coming Republican star by explaining he had been in the OSS during the war, the predecessor to the CIA, that he had gone into Nazi Germany on a secret mission. He had captured the physicist who was leading Hitler's effort to develop the atomic bomb, which thus stopped the Nazis from getting nukes. But he and the gang were captured. He was the sole survivor of his unit. He was sent to a concentration camp. They made him watch as they tortured his friends. They shoved bamboo strips under his nails, then lit them on fire. Then they lit a pile of other people on fire and made him run over the pile of them. Then he escaped the concentration camp. And then when he got home, just as the war was ending, he stepped on a landmine and had to relearn how to walk. The landmine part was true. The rest, not so much. None of it. And when it was proved that none of it was true, Stringfellow did not resign, nor give back any of the awards he'd been given as he told this war story again and again on his campaign trail and after he was elected. After one term in the House, the Republicans found somebody else and nominated him instead. Stringfellow fell into obscurity. He died in 1966 at the age of just 44. And apart from the obvious tragedy of that, half a century later, 
relatives found the manuscript of an unpublished autobiography Stringfellow had written, in which he said that until literally months before he was exposed, he truly believed all of that nightmare had happened to him, right down to walking over the pile of people being burned alive. Stringfellow wrote that the delusion must have formed in his mind while he was hospitalized recovering from that serious landmine injury. If the Stringfellow story was happening today, he could easily have been diagnosed with PTSD or similar internal conflagration. Or if he didn't have anything really wrong with it, he could have claimed it. I don't think any one of us actually wishes George Santos any permanent harm, not if there is a bona fide medical or physical or emotional reason he has been lying so extraordinarily thoroughly, provided he stops lying. But from the practical purposes of the politics of the new year of 2023, one party is trying to destroy democracy, one party is trying to preserve it. Strategy, political strategy, cannot be ignored here. And while it would be great to see George Santos redeem himself later, for now, we need him exactly where he is right now. We need him to keep talking. We need him to keep undermining the GOP and Kevin McCarthy. We need him to keep lying. And we need to protect George Santos at all costs. Still ahead, another commentary. It's your lucky day. There is real meaning and a real strategic value in the late interview transcript dumps from the January 6th committee, like the one yesterday. And then there are the fun parts, like Melania Trump complaining that the coup attempt meant too many meetings in the White House residence, and she was afraid Giuliani was going to see her walking around in a robe. Sports, the greatest has died. Pele in memoriam. Worsts arrested because of a pizza box in a video he made to try to own Greta Thunberg on Twitter. And it's Fridays with James Thurber. All that is next. This is Countdown. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. 
Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In a world of rational people, the conspiracy theory that January 6th was entirely the fault of some guy you've never heard of named Ray Epps would have been put to bed permanently with the latest release of under oath interview transcripts yesterday by the House Committee. But this is not a world of rational people. It's America in the waning days of 2022, and there are still Republicans. Epps was in the Arizona cell of the Oath Keepers, and he is on video from January 5th telling Trump supporters to go to the Capitol. Then when they all got there the next day, he did not go into the Capitol. He, in fact, offered to help police turn back the insurrectionists. And he is on tape trying to talk people into leaving the grounds. The January 6th committee report made no mention of him. For this, the right decided that Ray Epps was an FBI plant or Antifa or part of a breach team inciting the insurrection, or he works directly for Emmanuel Goldstein. Tucker Carlson, lunatic, who is incidentally in one of those streaks in which everything he touches dies, stay tuned for worse persons, insisted earlier this week that the January 6th committee failed because it did not send a criminal referral about Ray Epps. Congressman Thomas Massey, lunatic, accused the committee of failing to release the Epps deposition. Then yesterday, it released the Epps deposition. There is no there there in the Epps deposition. The Occam's razor explanation is not just obvious but correct. Epps, like dozens of those who were charged criminally in the attempted coup, testified under oath that he thought the Capitol was going to be open to the public on January 6th. Now, this might have been a dumb conclusion, but dumb conclusions are not criminal. When it turned out the Capitol was not open, he bailed out. Quoting his deposition, I saw people crawling all over the Capitol, climbing the walls. It made me kind of ill to my stomach. It had gone beyond to what I wanted it to be. They hijacked this cause. When they hijacked it and it turned the other way, all credibility was lost. He also testified under oath that the only time he has ever worked for the government was when he was in the Marines. Case closed. Not that any of them will believe case closed. Epps' testimony is important. It underscores the madness and the complete hypocrisy of the January 6th insurrections and, more importantly, their rationalizations. They had to do it for America and 1776 and Trump won and stop the steal and this is our house and where's Nancy? But it was all a false flag. So the government could uh, arrest somebody or something. I'm still not sure Ray Epps is my favorite part of the latest transcript dump. There is Stephanie Grisham insisting Melania Trump was pissed about the constant coup meetings being held inside the White House residential areas because that meant Sidney Powell or Rudy Giuliani might suddenly appear in her personal space. Quoting Grisham, she was very upset because nobody would give her a heads up and was she walking around in a robe, that kind of thing. Speaking of partially undressed, there was this question. But I do want to ask you, do you know somebody named Ali Akbar? Kimberly Guilfoyle answers, is that what terrorists yell? Ali Akbar? No, I think it is. Am I wrong? I do not know anyone named Ali Akbar. Question, there's an individual named Ali Akbar who goes by Ali Alexander. Kimberly Guilfoyle. I've heard of Ali Alexander. God, what a dope. And a voice on her like the public address system at Yankee Stadium, only louder. I met her in 2005 or so at MSNBC when Dan Abrams was trying to hire her to be his guest host. <laughs> yeah, that's what he was trying to do with her. And it was amazing that she consistently remembers to breathe. Anyway. 
on a meta level, there is one question lurking behind yesterday's transcript dumped and all the other releases of the last 10 days from this committee. What kinds of idiots release an investigation into the worst domestic terrorist attack in our history, the most heinous attempt to subvert freedom in our history, the most threatening attack on democracy in our history? What kinds of idiots do that at 10 p.m. on the Thursday before Christmas as a nationwide snow calamity looms? And what kinds of idiots follow that up by releasing the final transcripts of the interviews for their investigations at 5 p.m. on the Friday before Christmas and then during the week before New Year's? I have spent a week fuming about this and raging about this and wondering how Liz Cheney and Benny Thompson and Jamie Raskin let us down at the final moment. And after long and painful thought, I think I have the answer. What kinds of idiots do this? Really, really smart idiots. Consider the most extraordinary of all the recommendations by the House Select Committee on January 6th is not the set of criminal referrals not the play-by-play of Trump's sedition, not the damning documentation of a thousand criminals who should spend their lives rotting in prison for their perfidy and betrayal. Those things are invaluable, but they are surprising only in some details and some specifics. The most extraordinary thing this committee did comes on page 716 of its final report. Quote, The committee believes that those who took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution and then on January 6th engaged in insurrection can appropriately be disqualified and barred from holding government office, whether federal or state, civilian or military, absent at least two-thirds of Congress acting to remove the disability pursuant to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Permanently barred from getting public office. Of course, that's correct. And the committee members are hardly the first call to invoke the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment. Some of us called for it on the night of January 6th, 2021. But to see this in a congressional report is different than in any other context that could be imagined, except in a criminal indictment. And yet at the same time, invoking the 14th Amendment in a congressional report is like juggling nitroglycerin and dynamite at the same time. Of course, Any report containing it had to be released virtually in the middle of the night, in the middle of the holiday, in the middle of the transition from a Democratic Congress to a Republican one. To do it earlier would have actually risked handing the anti-democracy forces afoot in this nation a legislative victory. It would have been ideal if a recommendation about the 14th Amendment had come at any point, say, in 2021. But even then, the risk would have been tangible. Say the committee had reported not at Christmas, but at Thanksgiving or Halloween, and the House had acted on a bill, say the one later introduced by the Rhode Island Congressman David Cicilline, and actually voted to bar Trump from seeking further office, or Trump and Meadows, or Trump and Meadows and everybody else. Release that finding in April or June or September, and the political pressure to pass a bill and since the means of enforcing the 14th Amendment are unclear, probably just a symbolic bill, the pressure to do that would have been unbearable on the Democrats. And what then when the Republicans took control of the House? They are already bent on perverting the January 6th committee itself into some asinine smear against Nancy Pelosi or farcical defense of the traitor Trump. What if they had repealed some House action invoking the 14th Amendment? What if they had passed new legislation superseding the recommendation to go for the 14th Amendment? What if, since the Republican Party platform is to see legitimate grievances and legal actions taken by Democrats and create false, funhouse mirror versions of them with which to attack Democrats, what if Republicans introduced a measure to bar Nancy Pelosi or anybody else from public service? on some specious claim of violation of the 14th on January 6, 2021. I have never before accepted the argument that we should not act because the fascist bullies might then retaliate. They are bullies. Retaliation is all they know. But in this case, would it really have been better to have actually passed an anti-Trump 14th Amendment piece of legislation only to see it undone by the Republicans a month or two months later? Would it really have been better to see them be able to hold up a passed bill 
and portray it not as the cynical manipulation it would have been, but as some kind of triumphant defense of the law and triumphant defense of Trump. I think the committee, in the context of the timeline we and they are actually stuck in, I think the committee waited until its recommendation could not be acted on in the House so that it could not be reacted against in a coming Republican House, thus reducing it to a political football and rendering its meaning shallow, if not entirely empty. As it is, the recommendation about the 14th Amendment and everything else in that final report goes intact into the political atmosphere, into the historical record, and into the laps of the Department of Justice, which still has at least two years to seek indictments and convictions that cannot be overturned by Republican sabotage. The report itself is now fixed in time. The Republicans can assail it. They can complain about it. They can campaign on it. But even such transparent con men as Congressman James Comer of Kentucky have said they have no plans to investigate the committee or its report, which is a Republican 180 from before the elections. That, I think, is why the timing was so weird and so initially disturbing. Sneak the document out intact. Your audience is history and special counsel Jack Smith. The post-report release of the last depositions, that's a little harder to suss out, but I suspect there was method to this madness as well. What Barr and Chow and Ivanka Trump and many others said in them actually seems almost responsible and patriotic, almost reflects well on the party of insurrection. Pat Cipollone and others wrote a note card and over a span of three hours repeatedly handed it to Trump, urging him to say or tweet what was on it, namely, anyone who entered the Capitol illegally should leave immediately, and he refused. Barr says Mitch McConnell called him right after the election in hopes that he, Barr, would tamp down Trump's rumors and conspiracy theories. Ivanka says Susan Collins actually called her mid-insurrection in hopes she could get her father to stop it. I mean, you read that and you think January 6th was actually so serious even Susan Collins noticed. Maybe. Like burying the call to utilize the 14th Amendment, maybe there is more strategy that pertains to those depositions that I cannot see. Maybe not. But they did little damage to those around Trump. And once again, it may just have been a case of slip this stuff out to the public and the historical record before the Republicans take over and burn bag all of it. With this past week to think about it, beyond suggesting the wrath of the 14th Amendment, I don't see any new big-picture implications for the January 6th committee report that we all had not seen previously. There are the Max Miller quotes that on January 4th, Trump did indeed suggest bringing in 10,000 National Guardsmen, not to protect the Capitol from his thugs, but to escort and protect him and those thugs as they all went to the Capitol and to guard them from left-winger counter-protesters, you know, the invisible ones that never appeared. Ryan Goodman from the website Just Security says he found one smoking gun. It was known that Trump had called Ronna McDaniel, the RNC chairperson, and then put John Eastman on the phone with her, and Eastman told McDaniel, we want you to organize this fake electors scheme. Now, Goodman notes, there is sworn testimony that McDaniel then called Trump back and said, quote, I accept your request, not Eastman's, but Trump's request. There was one detail that should be a career ender for a reporter. It certainly will not be. Cassidy Hutchinson worries to her first attorney, Stefan Passantino, that Maggie Haberman knows that she had testified to the committee. Don't worry says the man who had been Trump's White House ethics attorney. Maggie's friendly to us. We'll be fine. Were I running the New York Times and read that, I would have fired Maggie Haberman on the spot. Of course, were I running the New York Times, I would have fired Maggie Haberman in 2016. Different decade, different Judith Miller, same lack of integrity. So on the meta level, the January 6th committee probably got the most out of its material over the summer, and by the strategy of holding back the 14th Amendment proposal so it could not be turned against democracy. But unstated and transcending all of this is one truth about the committee's report that is so simple that it can be easily missed. 
The report's greatest value is this. It is an endless sequence of dueling gloves to be taken off and theatrically slapped against the face of Jack Smith, the face of Merrick Garland, and the face of the rest of the Department of Justice. And the slap simply is this. We demand you indict Trump and do it fast and do it hard. This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, the concern and the sense of crisis during the World Soccer Cup, sadly, was warranted. Edson Arantes do Nascimento died in Brazil yesterday, age 82, complications and advancements of colon cancer. Pelé, the greatest player in the history of soccer, football worldwide. You know that. You know the statistic. 1,367 professional games, 1,283 goals. 77 goals for his national team, three World Cups for Brazil, the beautiful smile, the constant salesmanship of the beautiful game. In the multinational grief, you are not seeing much about what made Pelé so great. I am not an expert on this sport, but I did play it in school, and I don't think his brilliance was difficult really to assess. Pelé was an acrobat. The way Michael Jordan could shoot a basketball with perfect accuracy, even if neither of his feet was anywhere near the floor. Pelé was like that, only with every part of his body. Airborne, horizontal, well then, just a scissors kick back over his own head and the goalie frozen in horror as it hit the back of the net behind him. On the ground, Pelé had even better body control. He could start and stop and start again or fake left and go right around a defender, and all the while dribbling the ball with his foot. Some people have done these things once or twice in a lifetime. He did them once or twice every game. His time in this country is not the key part of his story, but it is important to remember in the hours here after his passing. He retired at age 34 in Brazil and was promptly talked into coming out of retirement by in no particular order, the Brazilian government, Henry Kissinger, and executives of the New York Cosmos and the North American Soccer League. Professional soccer had existed in this country for eight years, and it was notable only for record-breaking totals of empty seats. The Cosmos played in Downing Stadium on Randall's Island, which is about 430 acres in the middle of the East River, only it don't have water on it. Its most famous feature is support stanchions for New York's Triborough Bridge. As of the morning of June 15, 1975, the Cosmos record in the little stadium there on Randall's Island, the record crowd was 6,000. That day, with Pelé added to their roster, they put 18,000 in the stands somehow, and ABC televised the game nationally. And within a year, the Cosmos were playing not in the middle of the East River. They were playing at Giants Stadium, where a 1977 playoff game in a thunderstorm with Pelé on the Cosmos drew 77,000 fans. Two years earlier, the record had been 6,000. When he retired from the Cosmos and for good on October 1st of that year, he played the first half of a game for his Brazilian team, Santos, And then he played the second half for his American team, the Cosmos. That game, which mattered nothing in any standings anywhere, that game drew 75,000. The enormous crowds did not outlast Pelé's time here, but they showed what soccer could do in America and could yet do. And if the sport ever gets anywhere near that big here, somebody better name a stadium after him. Or maybe 12 of them. Still ahead, Fridays with Thurber, maybe his most famous story, certainly the most reprinted one in books everywhere, The Night the Bed Fell. 
First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger-Feck specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze to the New York Times. Once again, the Times is absolutely intent on turning every mouse into an elephant and every elephant into a mouse. As you may know, nearly a year ago, Russia invaded Ukraine. It is now trying to destroy Ukraine's power infrastructure in hopes of freezing Ukraine's population to death. The Times headline on this topic? Hardline positions by Russia and Ukraine dim hope for peace talks. Quite intransigent, those Ukrainians. That hardline position demanding Russia not try to destroy them and kill all their people. But wait, there's more. Same issue of the newspaper, Times headline, George Santos is in a class of his own, but other politicians have embellished their resumes too. Well, if he's in a class of his own, why are you equating him to those who are not in a class of his own? That's what a class of his own means. It's both sides-ism, whataboutism, and the destination point here is to preserve the Times' access journalism of the worst order. Speaking of access journalism, the runners-up, we have a team, Ryan Lizza of Politico and Olivia Nuzzi of New York Magazine. Anyway, that's how she pronounced it when I knew her. It might be Nuzzi or Nuzzi. One thing I know, she can't make up her mind. Nuzzi was once a promising political writer but has developed into an access journalist. She recently published a long, really long piece on Trump that got absolutely no pickup anywhere, even after Trump complained about it and attacked Newsy's looks. But that was not because Ryan Lizard didn't try. He's one of the editors of the Daily Political Newsletter, and the day Newsy's piece ran, Ryan Lizard's newsletter ran five paragraphs about it and described it as a, quote, rollicking look under the hood and said, Newsy scored an incisive interview, and nowhere was it mentioned that Liza and Newsy are engaged. The free publicity for the Fiancé's Magazine article is just coincidental, no doubt. Oy. But the gold goes to Andrew Tate, who the other day was a misogynist online influencer hiding out apparently in Romania. And if you had ever heard of him, it was probably because Tucker Carlson interviewed him once and defended him and then said, they're telling us he's a criminal. Okay, has he been charged? Four months later, the answer is, yeah, apparently. Thanks to Greta Thunberg and pizza. Tate tried to troll Greta about the 33 cars he claims to own and how he wanted her to send him her email so he could write her a lengthy email and detail how many emissions his cars are spewing into the atmosphere. And she wrote back and said, sure, here's my email. I'll clean this up a little. My email is smalldenergy at getalife.com. Tate was so owned by this that he put together a two-minute video berating her and posted it everywhere. And then Romanian authorities came to his hideout and arrested him. Because in the video, Tate included a pizza box, which is clearly from a pizza chain that operates only in Romania. The Romanian government had apparently been waiting for evidence that he was actually in Bucharest. Their lawyer now confirms Tate and his brother have been detained in a human trafficking and rape investigation. Andrew, do not mess with Greta Thunberg, please. Tate. Today's worst person in the world! If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. 
you'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans. The chaos in Washington, D.C. And trending topics on social media. As well as my straight shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I have argued before that James Thurber is the greatest American humorist, and it dawns on me that the argument is not unlike the idea that Shohei Otani of the Los Angeles Angels is almost automatically the most valuable player in baseball each year because he is an all-star hitter and an all-star pitcher in the same body. James Thurber was a brilliant writer, and in his spare time, he was an equally brilliant, almost avant-garde artist in the same body. His simple drawings depict the most complex of emotions and comedic situations. His dogs are immortal. And then there were his captions. Well, I can't do anything with his drawings in a podcast, so I'll just read. And I will read you now in this episode what is probably his most famous story. From My Life in Hard Times, The Night the Bed Fell, by James Thurber. I suppose that the high watermark of my youth in Columbus, Ohio, was the night the bed fell on my father. It makes a better recitation unless, as some friends of mine have said, one has heard it five or six times than it does a piece of writing, for it is almost necessary to throw furniture around, shake doors, and bark like a dog to lend the proper atmosphere and verisimilitude to what is admittedly a somewhat incredible tale. Still, It did take place. It happened then that my father had decided to sleep in the attic one night to be away where he could think. My mother opposed the notion strongly because she said the old wooden bed up there was unsafe. It was wobbly and the heavy headboard would crash down on father's head in case the bed fell and kill him. There was no dissuading him, however, and at a quarter past ten, he closed the attic door behind him and went up the narrow, twisting stairs. We later heard ominous creakings as he crawled into bed. Grandfather, who usually slept in the attic bed when he was with us, had disappeared some days before. On those occasions, he was usually gone six or eight days and returned growling and out of temper with the news that the Federal Union was run by a passel of blockheads and that the Army of the Potomac didn't have any more chance than a fiddler's bitch. We had visiting us at the time a nervous first cousin of mine named Briggs Beale, who believed that he was likely to cease breathing when he was asleep. It was his feeling that if he were not awakened every hour during the night, he might die of suffocation. He had been accustomed to setting an alarm clock to ring at intervals until morning, but I persuaded him to abandon this. He slept in my room, and I told him that I was such a light sleeper that if anybody quit breathing in the same room with me, I would wake instantly. He tested me the first night, which I had suspected he would, by holding his breath after my regular breathing had convinced him I was asleep. I was not asleep, however, and called to him. This seemed to allay his fears a little, 
but he took the precaution of putting a glass of spirits of camphor on a little table at the head of his bed. In case I didn't arouse him until he was almost gone, he said, he would sniff the camphor, a powerful reviver. Briggs was not the only member of his family who had his crotchets. Old Aunt Melissa Beale, who could whistle like a man with two fingers in her mouth, suffered under the premonition that she was destined to die on South High Street because she had been born on South High Street and married on South High Street. Then there was Aunt Sarah Schof, who never went to bed at night without the fear that a burglar was going to get in and blow chloroform under her door through a tube. To avert this calamity, for she was in greater dread of anesthetics than of losing her household goods, she always piled her money, silverware, and other valuables in a neat stack just outside her bedroom, with a note reading, this is all I have, please take it and do not use your chloroform, as this is all I have. Aunt Gracie Schof also had a burglar phobia, but she met it with more fortitude. She was confident that burglars had been getting into her house every night for 40 years. The fact that she never missed anything was, to her, no proof to the contrary. She always claimed that she scared them off before they could take anything by throwing shoes down the hallway. When she went to bed, she piled, where she could get at them handily, all the shoes there were about her house. Five minutes after she had turned off the light, she would sit up in bed and say, Hark! Her husband who had learned to ignore the whole situation as long ago as 1903, would either be sound asleep or pretend to be sound asleep. In either case, he would not respond to her tugging and pulling so that presently she would arise, tiptoe to the door, open it slightly, and heave a shoe down the hall in one direction and its mate down the hall in the other direction. Some nights she threw them all. Some nights only a couple of pair. But I am straying from the remarkable incidents that took place during the night that the bed fell on father. By midnight, we were all in bed. The layout of the rooms and the disposition of their occupants is important to an understanding of what later occurred. In the front room upstairs, just under father's attic bedroom, were my mother and my brother Herman, who sometimes sang in his sleep, usually marching through Georgia or onward Christian soldiers. Briggs Beale and myself were in a room adjoining this one. My brother Roy was in a room across the hall from ours. Our bull terrier Rex slept in the hall. My bed was an army cot, one of those affairs which are made wide enough to sleep on comfortably only by putting up flat with the middle section the two sides which ordinarily hang down like the sideboards of a drop leaf table. When these sides are up, it is perilous to roll too far toward the edge for then the cot is likely to tip completely over, bringing the whole bed down on top of one with a tremendous banging crash. This, in fact, is precisely what happened about two o'clock in the morning. It was my mother who, in recalling the scene later, first referred to it as the night the bed fell on your father. Always a deep sleeper and slow to arouse, I had lied to Briggs. I was at first unconscious of what had happened when the iron cot rolled me onto the floor and toppled over on me. It left me still warmly bundled up and unhurt, for the bed rested above me like a canopy. Hence I did not wake up, only reached the edge of consciousness and went back. The racket, however, instantly awakened my mother in the next room, who came to the immediate conclusion that her worst dread was realized. The big wooden bed upstairs had fallen on father. She therefore screamed, "'Let's go to your poor father!' It was this shout, rather than the noise of my cot falling, that awakened Herman in the same room with her. He thought that Mother had become, for no apparent reason, hysterical. "'You're all right, Mama!' he shouted, trying to calm her. They exchanged shout for shout for perhaps ten seconds. "'Let's go to your poor father!' and "'You're all right!' That woke up Briggs. By this time, I was conscious of what was going on in a vague way but did not yet realize that I was under my bed instead of on it. Briggs, awakening in the midst of loud shouts of fear and apprehension, came to the quick conclusion that he was suffocating and that we were all trying to bring him out. With a low moan, 
He grasped the glass of camphor at the head of his bed, and instead of sniffing it, he poured it over himself. The room reeked of camphor. Ah, choked Briggs like a drowning man, for he had almost succeeded in stopping his breath under the deluge of pungent spirits. He leaped out of bed and groped toward the open window, but he came up against one that was closed. With his hand, he beat out the glass, and I could hear it crash and tinkle on the alleyway below. It was at this juncture that I, in trying to get up, had the uncanny sensation of feeling my bed above me. Foggy with sleep, I now suspected in my turn that the whole uproar was being made in a frantic endeavor to extricate me from what must be an unheard of and perilous situation. Get me out of this, I bawled. Get me out. I think I had the nightmarish belief that I was entombed in a mine. <laughs> Gasped Briggs, floundering in his camphor. By this time, my mother, still shouting, pursued by Herman, still shouting, was trying to open the door to the attic in order to go up and get my father's body out of the wreckage. The door was stuck, however, and would not yield. Her frantic pulls on it only added to the general banging and confusion. Roy and the dog were now up, the one shouting questions, the other barking. Father, farthest away and soundest sleeper of all, had by this time been awakened by the battering on the attic door. He decided that the house was on fire. I'm coming, I'm coming, he wailed in a slow, sleepy voice. It took him many minutes to regain full consciousness. My mother, still believing he was caught under the bed, detected in his I'm coming the mournful, resigned note of one who is preparing to meet his maker. He's dying, she shouted. I'm all right, Briggs yelled to reassure her. I'm all right. He still believed that it was his own closeness to death that was worrying Mother. I found at last the light switch in my room, unlocked the door, and Briggs and I joined the others at the attic door. The dog, who never did like Briggs, jumped for him, assuming that he was the culprit in whatever was going on, and Roy had to throw Rex and hold him. We could hear Father crawling out of the bed upstairs. Roy pulled the attic door open with a mighty jerk, and Father came down the stairs, sleepy and irritable, but safe and sound. My mother began to weep when she saw him. Rex began to howl. What in the name of God is going on here? asked Father. The situation was finally put together like a giant jigsaw puzzle. Father caught a cold from prowling around in his bare feet, but there were no other bad results. I'm glad, said Mother, who always looked on the bright side of things, that your grandfather wasn't here. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. If you're not following or subscribing to the podcast, please do so. Here are our credits. Most of the music, including our theme, which is from Beethoven's Ninth, was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Everything else is pretty much my fault. That's Countdown for this, the 724th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. A new edition Monday. Until then, I'm Keith Olderman. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, good luck, and Happy New Year. Countdown with Keith Olderman is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? 
All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.